You're listening to Fintechs, A, a podcast that explores the innovations and challenges in Canada's fintech landscape. My name is Sue Britton. I'm the CEO of Firefly Growth and an entrepreneur with over 30 years of experience in the financial industry. I also serve on the FinPay Committee and I'm an advisor for Holt Exchange. Join us as we sit down with industry leaders, trailblazers, and pioneers to discuss their journey, the evolution of fintech, and what's next for Canada's ever-dynamic fintech ecosystem. I'd like to welcome Daniel Eberhard, founder and CEO of Coho. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to finally do this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, do you mind if I uh, you know, sing a few of your praises for a, a minute before we dive Take in? Take your time. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, Coho, wow. It's uh, a company that um, I have known since the day I became an entrepreneur, which is 2015, but you, I think you were founded in 2014. Um, have won tons of really great awards, um, you know, top employer awards, most powerful and impactful company awards. Recently, and uh, the top fifty or fast fifty uh, Deloitte's fast fifty list, number twenty five, eight hundred and twelve percent three year growth rate. Pretty cool. Um, uh, I also did some digging and and uh, found out that you're a Mount Royal grad from Alberta, um, and um, that um, you were raised by a single mom. So. Um, answers a few questions I have as I was like kind of going back and looking at, you know, your, uh, your career history and, um, and just sort of, you know, your drive and, and, and maybe with some, some of the things we might talk about later, but, um, um, we've raised 300 million, uh, and, uh, some of your investors were include. Portage, um, Drive Capital, NA Ventures, TTV Capital. That was a, a beta article I was reading. Um, you're an investor, a reluctant banker, and a girl dad. You know, all of those things all together are Great so, summary. super cool, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Put it all in a two-minute window. It sounds okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the girl dad, one thing I couldn't figure out, um, it's so great to know that you know people can go out there and just like try and dig, dig, dig in the internet and find out stuff about you. But I could see that you had one um, little girl. Do you have a second? I have a little boy now who's you about do? eight months old. Yeah, ah. so my daughter's three and a half. Uh, so you're and a girl and, girl and a boy dad. Exactly. Boy oh, dad cool. doesn't have the same ring. So. <laughs> All right. Well, congrats. Um, I'm Thank super you. excited to dive into this with you. It's kind of a pretty cool time given all the news that's been happening lately about um, you know, out of Ottawa anyway. Um, but yeah, why don't we start with how did you come to launch Coho and what is Coho all about? Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. So I, so, you know, actually didn't, I did go to school at Mount Royal. I didn't finish, um, because I ended up starting a wind energy company in university and uh, cut my teeth selling like private wind turbines in Saskatchewan and then <laughs> cool. got into industrial scale wind farm development and um, and then ended up through that getting lucky and we worked hard and, and found like some good sort of ARB opportunities as we were building that company and ended up selling that company. Um, but hmm. just to back up for a second, like hopefully the through line of my career is just to be useful at scale. It's kind of how I think about it. And hmm. the way that I think about it is like, 
when you are going to start businesses. I think I wanted to start businesses because the idea of somebody else controlling my outcomes uh, was was pretty scary to me. I went and like interviewed for be a logistics supply chain manager at Husky Oil, and that seemed properly terrifying. Um, <laughs> but then more so, it's just like you can succeed or fail for any number of good or bad reasons when you're starting a business, but you do have pretty perfect control over the variable of whether you're proud of what you're trying to do. Um, and so that felt like a, a useful thing to try and control for. So putting this together, uh, sold that winner company, came into capital for the first time in my life. You alluded to this. I, I grew up to a single mom uh, who worked very hard to give us a middle-class life in Canada, which is a wonderful thing. Um, you know, but she had to drive buses and clean houses. And it was like clear that she had to work hard to give us that life. And as I came into capital with no kind of financial education, I started asking myself, like, what do people do with money? Um, and, you know, they are like, on a time-based decision, some of the most important decisions that we make in our life, because it is, mm -hmm. there's kind of two, probably three underpinning principles. One, a great financial product versus a bad one means retiring with 30 to 50% less wealth if you're in the wrong financial product. Um, and the second part of that is like, we think that we'll switch, but human behavior just like suggests that we very rarely do actually switch. And we tend to like ride these things out and be quite apathetic towards the financial products that we, that we end up using. And then the third part of this is like, that I think about is whatever agency means to somebody or fulfillment means to somebody, it is very difficult to do that if they don't have financial stability. And so age, like agency or fulfillment might mean going back to school, it might be putting kids through school, it might be changing careers, might be not having a career, whatever those boxes that you're trying to tick in your life uh, that, that you have are, it, it's very difficult to tick those boxes in any meaningful way if you like have financial insecurity. And it is a fact that if you do the math on 30 to 50% retirement, big chunks of this country will end up with financial insecurity as a function of being in the wrong financial product. And then it was like, for me, very personal because my mom was one of these people. She was in, uh, she had, had worked so hard and then all of this value was getting extracted because she was in like IMER mutual funds. And then you look at all the other stuff and it's, it's really like suboptimal. And, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and then I asked my 10 of my friends for the last three months of bank statements, my brother gave me his and my brother had paid $85 in bank fees in three months and he didn't know it. And it was like, oh, this is really backwards. and. Um, the more time I spent in this space, the more I was like, oh, these are not anomalies. These are very consistent with market capture conditions of like the most heavily centralized banking oligopoly in the world, um, where there isn't competitive dimensions to like naturalized great financial products for folks. And so that's what we're trying to do with Coho. How do you give everybody a financial foundation? How do you democratize access to the best financial products? We launched in 2017. Um, you know, today we have over a million business uh, customers on the core business. We have about half a million on a B2B business that, that we power. Um, business is doing around kind of like $8 billion in throughput a year. And we're you know a couple hundred employees. And, and as you mentioned, at, at scale, we've raised a, a good amount of capital at this point. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's huge. Like, um, I, I had no idea. I actually don't know much about your B2B business. So uh, um, maybe we could talk a bit about that. Is that... Um, there's so much to unpack in what you just said, but, you know, um, you obviously like your consumer product, which, you know, I have, I'm sure lots of people are aware of, um, started as a, uh, you know, um, 
I like to consider it just a deposit account, even though, you know, you can load money in, you can use the sure. the product to pay for things. I'm sure it's grown significantly over over the, the years to many, many other features. Um, what's your B2B business? So we power some folks. Uh, so we became a direct issuer last year. Uh, and we didn't really talk about it or announce it. But what it means is we can issue cards without a bank license. We still have a bank that holds the deposits and does all that very important stuff, obviously. Um, but it means the card is actually, you know, now it says powered by issued by Coho Financial, whereas most of mm. the other folks in this space will say issued by People's Trust yeah, or something course. like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and then we we power folks like NetCoins and Simple and a bunch of wonderful companies who have like... Uh, you know, yeah, deposit or not deposit accounts because we can't call them that, but yeah. you know, kind of current accounts and spending accounts, and so we powered yeah. a lot of those folks, and they run on our infrastructure. Wow, wow, I did not know that. I feel like yeah. I mean, like, it, it, yeah, I love I'm I love learning new things, but um, that was one I would like. You know, I'm surprised that I don't know that. And is that we haven't maybe, really talked about it or announced yeah. it, so very few people actually know that. Um, so huh. yeah. But it just adds so much more, um, you know, not so much more, but so much additional depth to your business and what you're, what you yourself are are leading. And um, I, I gather from you know some, just some of your previous, um, you know, podcasts and things that you've been on that you're a rather humble person. Um, and so I won't put you in the position to necessarily <laughs> confirm that. But if, can I just go back to, so, you know, I think I, um, at the end of the day, you've launched this company for, for, you know, as you said, to democratize access to um, financial products for Canadians. And that is very much was something that was driven by, you know, your experience um, in your own life, as you mentioned. So that's a good way to put it. And that's what your mission and, you know, passion is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's right. Very cool. Um, okay, so maybe let's talk about where, what's your ultimate vision? You know, is it um, like, where where is Coho going from here? Yeah, so maybe just we could take it kind of on the, the, the sort of product structural lens and then, and then maybe more like uh, more macro. So, you know, I think today Coho has done a great job of building a core account you know, we pay 5% on deposits, we have great cash back, we're soon going to add like 20,000 more cash back vendors. So we're, I think we're going to be like one of the best in the country on that vertical. Um, we have wonderful products like credit builder and uh, two different ways for folks to build their credit history, uh, and, which is like, obviously, a super important part of the financial mm -hmm. equation. We've got lending products that that I'm very proud of. We've lent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. I would say with like the exception of some pricing tests, 99% of those pokes have never owed us more than $5. We've never put anybody in debt spiral, never put anybody into bankruptcy. Um, we can talk about that because I, I think it's important. Uh, and and so, you know, we if you think about those from just like a for core needs, okay, you can build your credit history, you can uh, borrow money cheap, uh, cheaply and safely, you can, you know, get cash back to all the core kind of banking needs. We're like still, we're just kind of turning on the lens of building wealth. At, at Coho. And then I think more directionally, the things that we're really excited about is, you know, once we do those things, we've kind of like met the core needs, but how do we actually like deliver progress to you? How do we help you earn more money 
um, and, and kind of like accelerate in your own kind of financial goals. And that, and that goes beyond just kind of like traditional means. It's things like, are you getting all the government benefits that you're entitled to? Can you mm-hmm. like work more gigs and side hustles and can we actually like participate in income generation for you? So those are like big questions that we're going to play around with in 2024. And then, wow. you, but the, the, you know, people ask me this all the time and it's like, I look forward to the day that Coho is like completely unremarkable. And what I mean by that is I think that we can build this business to 2 million accounts. Uh, and I think once we really start eating into banks, P&Ls, then they will change. And I think that we have a pretty good shot at doing that and like building a real asset book and a real lending book and, you know, millions of Canadians using the product. And, um, and then once that happens and the banks say like, okay, we can no longer monetize accounts this way. That's how you go from directly impacting 2 million people to directly impacting 20 million people because it's no longer competitive in the market. And so, of course, we will continue to move as a business, but like, that's kind of how I define success is, is once the banks like have to play a different game as a function of us eating their market share. And we are not there today, to be clear. They are still yeah, but very lucrative institutions. Yes, they are. They are. I think they're all reporting the results right now. And um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. none of them are suffering. You know, it's... um. I just sort of made a couple of connections based on what you're saying. I've had a few family members and um, and friends go through the consumer proposal process in the last little yeah. while. Um, and so I'm sure people know what that means, but that's essentially the, you know, the stage before declaring bankruptcy. Right. And so, you know, and in most cases, those, those, you know, situations have happened because they've not had the income, but also have, you know, been given too much credit. Yeah, sure. And then not have the income isn't just, you know, what you would think. It's not just I lost my job or I whatever. It's um uh shouldn't have had, you know, I had a fixed income and the fixed income part hasn't changed. But yeah. because it's fixed, you don't have the ability to repay the debt. Cool. And um and and that whole process is not only demoralizing, right, from a you know, I have to go down this path. Um, but it's, it's challenging because, you know, I wish that everyone knew that there was a coho, but they Mm. don't. Yeah. And so they go and they, you know, they go from the bank that, you know, they had to, that they can't deal with anymore to another bank. Yeah. And it happens all over again. And I, maybe I'm painting too much of a doom and gloom picture, but you know, there isn't any responsibility there on the part of who got them there. <laughs> Look, you're, you're, you're totally right. And and I think one of the myths that people have here is like that this is a, a low income problem. And I'm sure that I just know, like without asking you that, that it, with your friends, it's not like 35% of people who are making 150 K a year are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Like huge percentages of affluent people, otherwise mm-hmm. affluent people are like living really close to the Y. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's not just like demoralizing. It's like it's kind of tragic because there's a lot mm-hmm. of optionality that comes off the table when those kind of things happen. And I'm not, to be clear, like advocating against personal responsibility. We're all adults and stuff like of that. Course. But there, there is like a real upstream challenge here, where like 65% of Canadians would fail a basic financial literacy test. And yeah. part of the yeah. conditions of that is a function of the fact that we. Why would you need to be financially literate? You had six identical banks and for like the products were all the same. 
So that, you know, there wasn't a market condition on which to educate yourself because there was no point in educating yourself. And then, you know, we, I've, I've been pretty public about this, but like, I'm actually not like anti-bank. I think we have wonderful institutions that are, you know, as old as this country with brilliant, kind, smart people working in them. But we have like a serious incentive problem in this country where you have the most heavily centralized banking oligopoly in the world. You have regulators who have like very little teeth or incentive to push that. You have a CBA, which is, I think, largely very disingenuous in in how it frames the Canadian problem, which, of course, they are. They work for the banks and their lobby group. And then nobody is actually doing the accounting of being like, what does it actually mean to the 50% mm-hmm. of folks who are living paycheck to paycheck when they don't get that, when they don't get good financial products? Because mm-hmm. like once you're out of that prime bucket in the bank, there's a big gap between like the next stop is like monoline lenders and payday lenders. Right. Know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I have to, you know, almost stop myself from making it too personal because, um, because, you know, I know I'm not the customer, um, but, you know, having all of what you just said, I think I could probably say I've experienced over the course of my, you know, my career and um, sure. the whole living paycheck to paycheck. You know, I raised three boys. I was a single income household. I wasn't a single mom, but my husband stayed home. You know, like it was a there oh was absolutely. And when I left my corporate career and started my own company, um, uh, I had so much money in the value of my house. I was house poor though. And so I had to sell my house in order to mm. keep going to fund the business and make it even worse. I had to sell it. And the financial institution that I worked with, um, wouldn't, wouldn't help me because I didn't have a down payment for, so my choice was either to go rent and yeah. then try and get back into the market. And I lived in a big, giant freaking house in High Park. Like on the outside, you'd say, oh, these guys, wow, they're, they're blah, blah, blah. Muckety mucks, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. This, this, is, this is the giant myth, right? Is like if you yeah. actually peel back the data, and we're not really having this conversation effectively, and there's a public, but mm-hmm. there's like there's a lot of people who live mm-hmm. otherwise affluent lives, but are frankly getting ripped off that they would not be, they would have like a lot more money if there was, if we had better competitive dimensions in this country. Yeah. Yep. We can talk about yep. what that means and how it shows up in Coho and all the other things, but like yeah. it is, it is not getting appropriate airtime in this country because, and the other thing apart it, that, you know, I can even, as you're talking about it is like, it's a really stressful, emotionally isolating thing oh. to go through when you feel like you're the only one that it's happening to. But like, I yeah. promise you, just the fact that you said that, a bunch of your listeners are going to relate to that story because I hear them all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the bank may, you know, the only option I had was to get a second mortgage. And that mm-hmm. mortgage was through, you know, um, what's the right way to refer to it? Third-party lender? Anyway, I don't know. $18,000 in interest and legal fees for four days is what I paid in order to get the privilege of, um, yeah. of going through that process. And I suppose part of that, fuels my my entrepreneurial engine, you know, um, and maybe part of that's why I am sort of so um feel so so positive about, you know, the the fintech world. Um, but in fact I spent my whole career in in product innovation. So sure. it actually is a little bit of an ironic thing. Um I guess it's more that, you know how they talk about in um like certainly in things like um 
uh, therapy and coaching, which I know you've talked tons about, um, is, is like this lived experience. Like I, I have the lived experience of being a small business and being sure. a consumer who has been like, yeah, de- demoralized by my financial institution in so many ways. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, okay, let's move to, um, let's move to some of the cool stuff that's happening, which, um, I know that you you're uh, uh, pretty happy about the things that um, Finance Canada talked about. Let's talk about the the fall economic statement and and open banking and you know what how you feel about what's been announced and what that might do for you know your customers and yeah. So it's so look. This is the most progress that we've seen. This is the the first real progress that we've seen in eight years, seven years and talking about this, right? Yeah. Um and so this yeah. is like the first concrete proposal that's real. Um and so the optimism is warranted. I am more skeptical than other people just because like if you look at the RPAA timelines, like that had a similar level of enthusiasm when it was announced and it was like real and bounded and then that got pushed out. And and so like the answer is that this is like it's real meat on the bone. There's real conversations that are happening. I think the timelines are aggressive uh, based on what I've seen from, from, but I'd love to be proven wrong. Um, yeah. And so it's exciting. Uh, you know, the, the, I think kind of the myth with open banking is like that we would somehow hugely benefit from open banking. The, the truth is we would only indirectly benefit, like we would be generating data. And I think the real kind of implied value of open banking for us is all of a sudden, all of the things that, there will be now a market and an ecosystem of players to say, like, to make it much easier for folks to understand the actual cost benefit analysis of the financial right. products that they consume. And there'll be like right. objective providers to do that. And I think Coho looks better than banks in all of those situations. So, you know, that that is great. And then, you know, your ability to identify customers goes up. So there's a lot of like indirect things, but mostly it's just a function of a healthier ecosystem that we get to play and participate in. Right. Right. For sure. And um the, I mean, I, you know, my hope has always been that somehow this generates this awareness of alternatives, which I think is, you know, a slightly different way of saying what you just said. Um, yeah. But I think the reality is it's going to probably be, um, you know, it's going to be that that might happen as we can start to, I don't know, um, do things through what open banking brings over the years kind of thing. Um, but um, uh, so I was in Ottawa last week, actually, which would have been, you know, in case this, uh, I'm not sure when this goes out, but um, uh, so let's say what the last week of November. And, um, and I, I had, a, uh, I was actually there to, uh, I was invited by the Bank of Canada to interview Ron Morrow, and we can talk about that. I found, find it very, um, uh, um, very uh, exciting, actually, to think about what um, what they're doing there. But back to the open banking, I had a meeting with um, someone from the minister's office, and I, I asked, I said exactly the same thing you did. That you know, how is it possible that uh, everything that you've said that you'll do in twenty four will actually come um, will come to fruition? And uh, you know, there's no specifics, but adamant that it's going to. So. And, you know, I said, um, and they know that I'm a 
big mouth sometimes. So they probably expect me to, (laughs) (laughs) they're not going to tell me the truth, but, um, but I actually know this individual really well. I've, I've known him for um, eight years and uh, it was more on a personal level. We were talking frankly, but the one thing that they're talking about in the industry that I find like kind of interesting is this idea that, you know, this whole entity that um, finance has talked about creating, it's not totally baked yet. Like there's not, there's not some master plan to create this overreaching government entity. (laughs) Like, and, but the rest of it is fairly figured out. I think the reality is this is all just going to, it'll all just play out over the next, next year. And, you know, look, I don't think that there was enough in the fall economic statement for people to really like react and reject, you know? And so I think until you have like meat on the bone, um, you haven't like, you've committed to a, like, let's be clear, we've committed to a framework, right? Right. And the framework and hanging out the framework is when you actually get the pushback, but like committing to a framework is a kind of a peanut buttery statement. And it's like fairly appeasing (laughs) to everybody but it doesn't mean anything until you actually determine what that framework is. And then a lot turns on like two or three big decisions within the framework. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people are, uh, are hoping um, that this at least provides some direction to some of the solution providers who are, you know, heading down a certain path, like from a sure. data perspective or, you know, um, the ones that are working with the banks or the credit unions or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, okay. So maybe, uh, maybe if we, if, if you don't mind, then can we sort of talk a little bit about the payments, um, the payments changes. So, uh, obviously the retail payments activities act that is, has been fully published now. So I think everyone can understand, you know, what's going to be required of them. Um, Mm -hmm. certainly the Ottawa perspective is, look, this is, this is supervision that's needed. Um, you know, most people are talking about if from the industry are saying, Hey, this is, um, uh, yes, we agree. This is needed. Maybe we're already doing this, but you know, definitely going to be a, um, a good thing for the industry. And there might be even some, you know, consolidation that comes of it because of a long tail of small, you know, PSPs who maybe can't, um, you know, can't afford and or don't have the um, ability to create the process around. Yeah. Whatever. Um, But at the end of the day, it's a necessary step and ultimately will lead to towards, um, you know, participation in the RTR um, together with the other change, which that was announced in the fall economic statement, which was around changing some of the um, laws within the Canadian payments act. So, you know, you could, as COHO, get access to directly sure. clear and settle payments, which I'm sure would probably be of interest to you. Potentially. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, maybe just like a quick anecdote, and then I can answer the question. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, COHO's roughly doing like $8 billion a year uh, in throughput through our through our accounts. And um just on the core business, not including B2B. Um, so, you know, we're, we're at scale. Uh, and we spent, it wasn't until this year that our first fund, we call it first fund fail, FFF, 
that our first fund fail rate was like sub 3%. Uh, and so like we spent a long time operating with, I mean, all the way when we first started Coho back in 2017, we would like manually type in e-transfers to get them to clear. So everybody would have funds and we would like manually do it until the wee hours of the morning. Eventually we yeah. build bots and whatever, but we operated for years with, you know, one out of five, sometimes size one out of four, just first attempts for users to add funds to Coho failing, yeah. which is a broken payment system objectively. Like you would not see yeah. that in most developing countries. Right. Um, you know, and compare that and contrast that with the Revolut's experience, which launched in mm-hmm. Europe and within seven months of like launching had a bank license, you know, yeah. and it's like, yeah. we're sitting here just trying to like get a working payment engine with billions of dollars and a million customers and even today, it's like two-ish percent fail, which is like still not a working payment engine. Um, so we're way more excited about the real-time rail uh, as a yeah. function of just like the direct impact on the experience. Yeah. The look the the RTR. Um, I think it's impactful, and th- I'm actually like I do. I I am. Bad regulation is so much better than ambiguity. And so it, I don't actually care that they got it right or wrong. And I think they got it pretty right, frankly. But like what you actually need, like what markets hate is uncertainty. And we, if you're trying mm-hmm. to break competitive market dimensions, like they can name any bar that they want and we can, they can literally, this is how high you have to jump. And then we can all make informed market-based decisions about whether or not we want to jump that high. And then we have to figure that out as entrepreneurs and that's our job. And like, that's the game that we play. And that is like vastly superior than being like, well, the bar might be here, but it might be here or it might not exist at all. And then like, how do you underwrite for that? How do you raise mm-hmm. capital for that? You know what I mean? How do you build for that? And so all these folks who are like RTR players or who are building into this, we're taking like a big regulatory risk. And for some of them, it'll work out. Some of them, it won't. But now mm-hmm. they actually, the market will be able to determine how we should operate within the constraints of this. So like, that's kind of what, is like so painful about this is like it's not about getting the regulation perfect it's just about making progress and setting a clear and consistent set of outcomes that we can then react against and then determine whether we want to like compete against that or not or quit or whatever but like you know the, the that's what matters and so yeah it's commendable that we did it um we still got a long ways to go there's been multiple delays whatever but like yeah yeah it does feel like there's a bounded set of things to react against now which is great yeah. We, I noticed that um, Tracy Black <clears throat> um, had some, you know, comments in uh, the lo- an, a lo- an article in the Logic, and uh, of course there there was unfortunately nothing there that gave it, gives us any indication of when the RTR when they might be able to tell us, you know, what's what's going to happen and by when. Sure. But um, but I, I I think you know we should remain optimistic. Um, one question I wanted to ask you, you've had to, you know, ha- partner with a bank in order to get access to the, to the um, payment systems. Um, a lot of people talk about being debanked, like as a, as a fintech, let's say, right. Where yeah. the, the banks, um, you know, and I've, I've heard um, Cato at uh, Loop talk about this historically, yeah. I think back in the lending loop days. Um, how real is it? Is is that like getting debanked? Like having your sponsor bank say, "Yeah, we're not going to work with you anymore." Uh, it is definitely real, and it's actually a little bit 
tied into the regulatory conversation. So, you know, when I started Coho, the options were three. You could work with like People's Trust, DC Bank, or Alltrans. And Alltrans was like clearly a fly-by-night organization. Yeah, I mean, it was heard like, of them before, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, they're full that now they got sued by the government for being shady, whatever. Um, and so there's two games in town. And you can imagine what the pricing is attached to those two games in town. Uh, and, and so there was like kind of this like duopoly for, for folks like us to go play it. Um, you know, and, and that's okay. You like some, and, and look, it, some of the requests are valid. Like you do, like the banks are regulated. They have real skin in the game. If you are not doing your job in terms of KYC or AML or sufficient transaction reports, what, whatever those things are that, that you have certain obligations to live up to. And so it's not like they're all bad or all good, but this is again more part of like the the regulatory uncertainty comes in. The bank, if you think about you as a startup in this place, like you were going to be a drop in the bucket of a bank's PL. So how much mm-hmm. regulate regulatory risk appetite are they going to have for a company which is going to generate eighteen thousand dollars for them in their first year? Like zero, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. the fact that they don't have regulatory clarity, the biggest actually wash through of that is not coho via regulator or fintech via regulator it's regulator via bank via coho because that's where like you have a risk committee and you have a chief risk officer at a bank who just like doesn't care about yeah, eighteen thousand exactly. dollars in revenue yeah and does care that like you know coho's suspicion transaction reports are not getting reported on a semi on a regular enough basis and so why would they take the risk right um and you know we we don't have we have like very brittle infrastructure here in Canada, which is mm-hmm. not reflective of the actual systemic risk that these things pose. Like the idea that a seven person startup has to submit STRs, which by the way, the sponsor bank has to issue, which then FinTrack audits is like crazy relative to the actual risk that that poses. You know, mm-hmm. that you could have a volume based thing around a million or 10 million, or like here's a hundred million in annualized. You can have different controls for all of them, you know? It's um yeah I I I I struggle with the you know if you're not regulated or supervised you're not you're somehow not um uh not capable um look yeah just the, the, <laughs> there is two big myths in Ottawa and one of them is that fintechs are not regulated we are regulated we have to do KYC we have to do AML we have to do state STRs we have thirty people on our risk like. One of every six employees at Coho is a risk person. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. which, by the way, it's a lot. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. and so, like, that, the idea that you're not regulated is just nonsensical. Now, you're yeah. not regulated in the way that banks are, but that's because we're not a bank, you know? Um, but like, money movement is a very regulated thing in Canada. Yeah. The other thing that is a pernicious myth in Ottawa is the idea, and this is, is the idea that somehow exists in Ottawa that all of these banks are somehow opposing forces to systemic stability and the exact opposite is true. And if you look at like multiple world bank studies, you actually need a thriving domestic competitive bank market to get long-term systemic stability in a market. And so, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think if like I had a magic wand in Ottawa, I would just, those would be the two things that I'd be like, these are the mm-hmm. things that you need to understand that are just objectively not true. That is like a widely perceived held truth. In and do you think that a big part of this too has, has to do with um, like the risk is not just the number of the number and the size of financial institutions, but also um, the technology 
and I specifically, like, I'll give you an example. So I, my last, um, my last experience was with a company called Finastra. It wasn't called Finastra when I was there, but you know, we ran lending and payment systems for sure. banks all over the world. Um, one of the things we were, I was in charge of was innovation. And we were talking to some of the credit risk folks at one of the big banks, one of the big five. And they were um, explaining how, you know, because all these systems didn't work and it would cost, you know, like millions and millions of dollars, even just to do, you know, a, uh, what do they call them? Business requirements document um, with IT. Yeah. Um, God, I haven't said that word in a long time. Um, uh, but that what they would do is they would just dump, you know, the output into an Excel spreadsheet and that would be the way that they would do their risk, um, uh, assessments of mortgages. Yeah. Like it's fully manual and, um, like that just, and so it's not, you know, people like to talk about the fact that things are written in COBOL and that there's not enough, you know, people who understand that it's so much more than that. It's that yeah. these systems are huge, disconnected, um, probably can't really be fixed. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's anyway, I don't know if you agree with that, but. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're right. I think that the increasingly my, my intuition is that bankers are realizing that you actually can't fix these things and it's probably just going to take a generation to fix them and you will eventually have new clients on a new bank framework and run like a dual yeah. core system. Um, and eventually all of those clients will like migrate off. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I remember, um, I was in London, this is probably three years ago now. And it was, I think it was like the CIO of RBS. Mm. Um, and I remember he had like a $900 million, like tech innovation budget. And then you peel mm. back the layer and it was like $840 million was maintenance. And so he's spending 60 million bucks a year on like innovation, but you know, and, and you know, and so it's just like, um, oh, wow. <laughs> these are, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but look, and, and, you know, again, it's like, it's not even about that the banks do have those problems, but they, you know, they, they do certainly a lot, a lot of things well within the constraints of that it actually is like what what you actually again just want is like competitive new entrants with a different infrastructure and then those infrastructures will hopefully wash through to consumer benefits and then we'll drive market share and then that will like force the change but the banks are not going to force it themselves no i would yeah and and all of that too will reduce risk it'll it's ironic it'll you know more competition will reduce risk for um you know for the market because we have alternatives in the event that somebody you know something terrible happens with one of these systemic they will reduce risk on things. a technical redundancy option yeah. like structure but they will also just reduce risk systemically if you think about the united states where there's you know 5000 banks or europe with all the you know fintech innovation there mm-hmm. and and when you ask bankers like how are you going to be competitive in 15 years or 20 you know like mm-hmm. the idea that Canada is a domestic market, those barriers are going to be eroded, mm-hmm. you know? And so mm-hmm. like th- that is a very thin moat on which to build a generational financial. And our banks are like some of the best companies in the world. And I want them to stay that way. Yeah. Um, the yeah. best banks in the world, I should say. Yeah. And, uh, and so the idea that like domestic banks will continue to have winners, I just don't think it's true. Like I, you yeah. can, 
I think very easily see a world where banking is like much more international in 15 years than it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Has to be. Why do you yeah. think that, um, why do you think that, you know, like more banking licenses aren't being issued? I know that's kind of a bit of a rookie question, but I mean, I, I've studied the banks no, like 35. I don't even know if we have 35 anymore. Maybe less yeah. Silicon Valley bank makes that 34. I don't know. But like yeah. what, what is it? Um, I think it's a really important question. I think OSPI has been given the mandate by the Department of Finance to manage systemic stability. And I think that the perception in OSPI, uh, of OSPI, and it, I think it is changing very slowly for a long time, has been that they would rather deal with five centralized counterparts. Um, and that is a much easier thing to manage. And like that 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 is what their mandate is and their mandate because no and and so if you think about OSPI, which has a massive systemic like pretend there was a systemic issue in canada it's OSPI's holding the bag who's holding yeah. the bag of any regulatory framework for a deeply uncompetitive banking market in which millions of canadians are living in financial insecurity who otherwise one is a function of a bad financial product nobody that's not any pnl and then the pnl yeah. that it actually is on is on the banks who report rate earnings calls who then hire you know however many hundreds of thousand canadians and have great yeah. stock performance and pay dividends back and so like there's a bunch of incentive structure on one side of this and then concentrated around that is i is the cba which i think is like a very intellectually disingenuous organization and how they frame problems and 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 the they've been really successful you know um, yeah, I wouldn't want to be a member of the CBA because I, I don't think it's yeah noble work. Um, but I think that they've done a really good job. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't like, I don't know about you, but often um, and maybe it's because I'm female, but I get accused of, you know, having too much emotion in some of the things I talk about. And um, it's not emotion. If anything, it might be, you know, frustration. But a lot of this is fact right? Like there isn't, um, yeah, it's, it's fact about how much profit our financial institutions generate, what? uh, increasing profits quarter over quarter. It, and it, it is a fact. Let, let me just like rattle off some facts. It is a fact. The return on equity of Canadian banks is anywhere from 50 to 80% higher than United States banks. I mean, the dollars that they keep on their balance sheet, they squeeze 50 to 80 cents more out of than 50 to 80% more out of than United States banks. Now, where is that money coming from, right? It's obviously a zero sum game that's coming from consumers. There's a fact that every quarter, a credit card department in a bank has a quarterly earnings call. And if they don't sell more credit card debt or more credit card fees, that is not going to be a good earnings call. It is a fact that there is a market metric called the Canadian Learn called the Learner Index, which is a metric of bank efficiency. Um, market competitiveness. Do supply and demand curves exist? Do they compress margins over time? Basically, how well is a marketing function? And that Canada's at the bottom of the G20. Um, in in 2009, it exploded and we have like never recovered. The only country that I have found, and I've looked at a lot of them, uh, a lot of countries learn index, the only country with a less competitive banking market than ours is Qatar. And that means I looked at what? Russia, Argentina, Brazil, like you name it in terms of like this market metric. So, okay. So like those are all 
facts. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I think hmm. the, the, there is no one accounting for those things though. Right. Yeah. Like there yeah. is no, this is nobody's job. There is no right. minister of economic equality and opportunity in this country. Oh, right? that sounds like a friggin' excellent new yeah, maybe. role. But, I, but like, I mean, you look, I could keep going like this is, yeah, it is a I fact know. that we are at the bottom of the G7 in terms of productivity per capita by most or all metrics and that the forecast gets worse, not better. Right. Like yeah. this, this is, this is a like, Yes. Um, and so, so I, I think that there's, again, I, yeah. with all that being said, I'm optimistic because I think you have to be optimistic. And I do think that there's like cracks in the dam and. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's all good. I mean, I agree with you. I think that there are like, there's more, um, you know, promising regulatory change announcements were made in the last two weeks than were have been made in the last three years that I think will probably uh, impact banking for good. Um, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in the, um, uh, in, uh, one of the things that was released, there was mention of 9 million Canadians sharing their passwords, their banking passwords. Did you see that? I don't know if you saw no, that. No, I haven't. 9 million. And that's yeah. something that is being put out by finance. Like, <clears throat> and it's not. Sharing them into like bank account scrapers, those kind of things. That's what you mean? Yeah. 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 This is like one of the ways that the open banking argument was so disingenuous because the cudgel was always like it's a security risk. But meanwhile, at least it seems like every year or two, a bank has like a big security breach anyway. But putting that aside, the other part of this is like we are existing in a world where I mean, how many like digitally native Canadians are there? 15 million. So you'd probably say yeah. like two thirds of them are using bank account scraping. Yeah. And so like this exists. Um, and yeah. the, and the, the gray market that exists is a much bigger security risk and actually a structured open banking market with like no inputs and takes absolutely rewrite permissions and all the things that come with like a robust open banking. Frame. Yeah. But it also, you know, and I think this is something that has been tough to get anybody to talk about, and it probably wouldn't take that many of you, um, you know, fintechs to actually you know, provide some of the facts about how many Canadians are using, you know, products like yours or Wealthsimple or, and um, yeah, it just feels like there's without information to really prove that the need is, is there. And in many cases, acute, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I mean, I know you're not in this necessarily in small business banking. I wish you were. Um, but that's an even worse place for, yeah. you know, lack of inclusion and, and, but of businesses in being able to have their financial needs met. Um, yeah, the SME space is brutal in Canada. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely brutal. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pivot to something else. Um, uh, tell us a, a little bit more about Coho and just, you know, um, like, do you have any stories, customer stories? that you can share? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we have lots, like we, we, so every week at our standup, we talk about a user win, like then making sure that we're shipping value to the customers. Um, seems like every quarter we kind of like film a video of a bunch of our users talking about the product. We, we really do try and keep close to the user uh, 
and, and actually listen very well. We don't always do it very well, but that's certainly the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, yeah, we look, I mean, we had one uh, last probably a couple of weeks ago, um, which was a woman who had started a business and uh, it was, it was probably like a micro version of your story where she like mm. had started a business. She had some financial like instability. She was able to borrow. She was able to improve her credit score. That credit score improvement as a function of, you know, paying and doing the right behaviors, improved her credit score. She was able to get a lot of credit for her business. Like it was really kind of against the fire for a while. And yeah. she, you know, now has like this wonderful thriving little solo business. Mm. Um, but you know, the way that we kind of talk about this is we, you know, there's, we have three products. Some of the products alone have like a hundred thousand people on them. Um, three to either products to build your credit history or, or build your credit, uh, or to borrow money. And, you know, it's an objective fact that, uh, as I alluded to earlier, like that we've lent hundreds of millions of dollars and by and large, nobody's owed us more than $5 through That's that amazing. process. Um, mm-hmm. We underwrite to like completely different loss rates than the banks do, particularly in like the near prime or, or subprime sectors. And even in prime, we, we outperform. Um, and so if you think about those 100,000 people, if Coho didn't exist, they would have gone to other financial products. Those financial products objectively would have been worse. And some of them objectively would have ended up in bankruptcy or in not good positions. Absolutely. And so, yeah. you know, you, you almost have to like play it out different altitudes, right? Which is like, there's this big kind of macro challenge in Canada. And then you tell individual stories because that's what makes it relatable and real. And then you say like, we're actually telling that story a hundred thousand times every month with Mm. the financial products that we have here, you know? Um, Mm. uh, Yeah. It's a big part of what we try and do and talk about at Coho and and just to keep folks focused on the right thing. That's a great idea. I I know it's probably not um, like, you're not probably the only one to do it, but it don't, don't you find though that as you as your company has grown, it's been harder to hang on to doing those types of things, like talking about user stories at <clears throat> you know at meetings and standups. Yeah, you certainly get further away from the user, and so you have to be really intentional about trying to, um, you know, make sure that you don't lose that. And yeah. so I still answer emails, and I have a public email, and. Uh, you know, I usually get at least one pissed off customer email a day, um, but, it, <laughs> but it helps keep us sharp. Things, um, yeah. Things happen. But look, feedback, I mean, way, right? you, yeah, exactly. You have to kind of use it constructively. And, but the way that we kind of think about it is like if, you know, we're a couple hundred folks um, uh, with a couple hundred million dollars raised and, you know, RBC has 120,000 employees and there's like five other banks just like RBC. So if we go to market with exactly the same thing as RBC, like by definition, we will lose because they are mm-hmm. multiple orders of magnitude bigger than us, right? And so you, we do kind of have this thing that is not unique to Coho, but that is rare where if we don't build a great product, we're going to lose. And so we kind of have like a forcing function to stay close to the product. And the way that we think about this is, I don't know what the best version of Coho is. I am much more interested in building the machine that figures out what that is. And so like, if you can listen really well, and if you have a high velocity organization, you know, we release a new version of the app every week. We like engage with customers a lot. That feedback mechanism helps you find the signal that then ultimately gets you to the right place on product. And so part of this is like, I think of it as like, it's at bats to use a baseball metaphor, but like we have 52 at bats a year. And a bank has four, right? Because we're going to 
iterate 52 times in a year with 52 app releases. And so we like get to when we do find veins of value around different products, like we get to iterate on those things and double down on those things and then, you know, and find those things. So that flows through into a bunch of things about how you organize your company and communicate mm-hmm. and all these other kinds of things. But it's like, it, it's, this is a much broader question than you asked now, but, but it is <laughs> no, like I, really about the mechanism to like go and understand user pain. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, the closer you say you might, not, you might, as you scale, you might not be as close to the customer, but it sounds like that's quite the opposite. But, um, um, it is, uh, I think it's more important that you stay close. I just think it's harder. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I hope you're writing some of this stuff down and you're going to write a book someday. <laughs> I actually feel like there's le- like a lot of lessons in leadership that because um, you're very um, insightful and introspectful. My my husband says I don't understand a lot a lot of words. He says it in a very loving way. We've been married for 31 Sounds years, like it. so nice. it's fine. But I'm trying it. to <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to come up with ways to describe you and like you're quite an unusual leader in my experience of a company with your success um you know like even even some of the things you've been very open about talking about around therapy and around you know just the need for you know i mean how many coaches do you have you know on staff yeah, like three. It's, yeah we have yeah. one's on mat leave so two yeah. <laughs> But it's, um, I hope you write some of this stuff down. I think it will be, uh, you know, if I would encourage anyone listening, if you haven't, you know, listened to some of your previous um, interviews, they, you know, show it and listen from a a leadership. um, uh, I won't use best practices because I read that uh, post. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, leadership lessons. Yeah. That's kind of you. Um, Okay. Two more questions and then we'll we'll wrap this up. One is around um give us your, you know, sort of prediction on what's gonna happen over the next, you know, like say three to five years in the industry. Where are we gonna be? From a regulatory perspective or a market perspective? Let's go market. I think we've talked talked yeah. enough about regulatory. Like what's it gonna look like in Canada? Still gonna have five big banks, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Like they're they're not going. So 100% we're still going to have five or six big banks, depending on how you want to define it. Um, I think you will have consolidation with fintech players. And I think you will have scaled fintech players that are like really competing with the banks. Yeah. I think people underprice uh, are mispricing fintech a lot right now. Uh, you know, the gross like inflation and the gross cycle and looking at the market multiples and all those kinds of things. But if you take a, you know, a company like Chuck Schwab, I shared this story with the team the other day, Charles Schwab, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I think it took them 11 years to get to their first million clients, you know? Um, and, and when they started, it was like, it was like, nobody's going to call in to like a dark pool of brokers to make a trade. You have to know your broker and all that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And then Charles Schwab was like, that's not true. And they built these discount brokerages and then they stayed out late and then they opened up late and then they moved across the country. And so it took them like 11 years to get to a million customers. And, you know, now they have $7 trillion in management and assets under management, like 25 years later. Right. So I just, I think people's intuitions about how these businesses compound is wrong. Um, And, you know, like FinTech really got started. Like we launched five years ago, well, simple, maybe like a little earlier. 
um, you know, Barwell, and we have 5 million customers combined across our three platforms today. And so people are just like mispricing this because I, I do agree. think it takes longer than people think. But I think once the switching occurs, it will be very difficult to unwind. Mm-hmm. So like, I, you know, we have 2030 goals and 2040 goals at Coho um, because I do wow. think of this as like a generational play. That's awesome. Hmm. That's really interesting. I have never heard anybody say that. Um, do you think of Tangerine and uh, um, what's it, Simply, Simply as and, competitors? Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I I do. Um, I think a couple things. I think they are, of course, I think they're competitors. Like the only competitors that I care about are are the big banks because they have 95% market share in this country. Yeah. So like if we don't figure out how to get users out of the banks and it doesn't matter. Um, We tend to over-index around people from Simply and Tangerine because they tend to be like a little more financially intentional about what they're doing and what they're consuming and stuff like that. Um, Well, if I can Do I think of them as competitors in the sense, like, I I just want to say one thing because what the, I I should have, I should have said one more thing, which is, um, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, Mm -hmm. like each of them have kind of gotten to 2 million customers and then plateaued. And that is kind of what I was wondering, what I was, what I should have asked is not, are they competitors, but, you know, like, I'm sure that, that, that hasn't happened to well simple, um, you know, you're on your way there, but what is that? Is that like, oh, you know, a challenger kind of has a 2 million kind of customer cap or what is it? No, I think it's the fact that these things are owned by their banks, right? Like yeah. if you think about the yeah. product suite. And Tangerine's starting to shake some of this off. Um, the product suite is largely identical to what it was three years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, look, the, the, I'm, like, I have a lot of respect for those banks. Of course, you have to. I think PC Bank sure. is a wonderful product. Like um, EQ. But yeah, EQ. EQ is actually interesting because EQ is actually independent. Um, yeah. And so their propensity and ability to innovate is, is much deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, I think it's not an accident that, that these things plateau. I think if, if you can stay independent and keep founder control, um, I think that you have a much better shot of building the really interesting long-term company. Getting to 2 million customers, like those are wonderful businesses that have built a lot of value and stuff like that. Have they reshaped finances in Canada? No, but like they're owned by the banks. Of course not. Why would they? You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's not a yeah. surprise where we're at either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Um, like, so what is, what are, what are one or two things that you've kind of learned over your entrepreneurial journey? And, Mm. um, I think you've said this in, in, in another interview where, you know, this is, this has been your only job, like, you know, um, given what you told me about sort of when you finished, um, your post-secondary um, uh, period of time, like what, what are one of the things that you wish, one or two other things that you wish you knew that you would want to impart as advice for others? Oh, I know I'm going to regret whatever answer I give because I'm going to think <laughs> of something spicier later. Um, <laughs> I, so I think a couple things. Um the the I think careers are built of three components. I think that you have like effort, skill, and luck, 
right? Mm -hmm. And I kind of think of like skill as like, what's your IQ, EQ kind of fixed in eight components. I think of luck as like being a huge determinant in factors that I think not a lot of people give Massive. credit for. Yeah. Like just as a quick aside, the person who builds a billion dollar company can't possibly be a thousand times smarter than the person who builds a million dollar company. And so yeah. if you think about the distribution of like, how talented people are versus the distribution of outcomes, they're like enormously different, right? So the variable is, is largely luck. But then I think the, 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 the variable that I'm very, I think is most important is like effort. And effort is a function of like, how hard can I push against a given problem set? But mm -hmm. it's also a function of how much does a given problem set pull me, right? And I started mm -hmm. a business between the wind energy company and it was an e-commerce logistics company. It was actually, you know, we, we're doing okay. We grossed like 300K in the first year and we we're, I hated it, you know, because I just felt like the stuff that we were selling was going to end up in a landfill. And I was like, I can't do this. And I will also be at a huge competitive disadvantage if I don't care about like the problem pull. If the problem doesn't pull me, then I will be miserable. And so I just think like um, the idea that I think way too many people are willing to shortcut to get to their financial outcomes. And I actually think it's just the wrong thing. And I'm not saying something like corny and hokey and follow your dreams, but just like mm -hmm. believe the thing that you are doing is net positive for society. And it is actually an enormous competitive advantage. Like I would have quit Coho many times if I didn't feel like it was useful. Um, yeah. I talked about this on a podcast a little while ago, but I think it's like interesting and instructive and I call it like the anonymity heuristic. And so mm -hmm. I will talk to university kids. And I will say, um, okay, I know this is like a bit hippy dippy, but I'm like, okay, close your eyes and put up your hand when you know what you want to be in the future, you know, now you've, and so like you've achieved this career, you want to go be an executive, whatever. Cool. Now I want you to pretend that you've done that thing, but you can't tell anybody about it and nobody knows you've done it. So you like totally eliminate the social component or the financial component of the thing that you're doing and you isolate for just the work. Do you still want to go do that thing? And like 60% of kids will put their hand down because they are doing something that is related to status or family pressure or financial gain or whatever those kinds of things are. Mm. Um, and <laughs> that's like a really important variable to figure out when you're 20. And there's a reason a lot of people end up rich and miserable in their 40s. And it's because that's when they figure it out. <laughs> it's because they figure out that on the other side of all this kind of stuff is like not 50s. 50s. 50. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. Um, and so it's not like hokey, follow your dreams. I think that's really bad, dumb advice, I think. But I think building something around a problem space that you think accelerates humanity, that you can put your head on the pillow and feel good about at night is just like an enormous advantage. Mm -hmm. And then like the other stuff comes. So. Hmm. Wow. Very cool. Well, I, um, I think uh, there's lots to be taken from that. And uh, yeah, it's never, it's never too late either. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. I hope my kids are listening. Um, okay. Well, listen, thank you so much. I, first of all, congrats again on, you know, um, building such a great company. Um, and I was really pleased to be able to have a chance to chat with you and, um, did I miss anything? Is there anything you wanted to say that we didn't cover? <laughs> yeah. Like the, it's just the only thing that I'd leave is like, I, it, it's very kind of you to say great company awards and whatever, but like 
make no mistake, like there's a bunch of stuff that's broken in Coho today. And like all these companies look like great from the outside and dollars raised and all that kind of stuff. I, it's, you know, you peel back the curtain and there's just like a lot of, I just don't want folks to feel like this is inaccessible or impenetrable or something like that. Like, yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's like lots of wood to chop, lots of things that are broken and janky and things that we're figuring out at Coho and everything else. So, well, um, I think you're probably one of the most self-aware leaders I've, you know, talked to in a while. So I think that that it bodes well. <laughs> good start. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks, Stu. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Super fun. Take care. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Looking for more insights? Visit us at fintechscanada.ca or follow us on LinkedIn. We'll see you next time for more on Canada's latest fintech innovations.